whenever you're talking about machine learning, it's not like always the solution to any problem. Because whenever you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Sometimes you don't really need this kind of autonomy, or sometimes you don't really need that many robots, or you need to optimize your process. Because whenever you're trying to automate, it doesn't make sense to just throw robots at it and just make it work. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Jean-Marc Galcazzi is a research engineer and a founding member of a company called IdealWorks. So tell me about what you're working on at IdealWorks. Sure. So yeah, basically in startups, it's a little bit hard to have a specific job, like a very specific task. But basically what I'm working on is applied AI. And what this means is we have basically two products. What's an AMR? So imagine it as a small robot, which can drive autonomously inside your factory, or maybe even outdoors. You can find outdoors AMRs also, and it can take decisions on its own for its navigation in a known environment, or even sometimes in unknown environments. And basically the task of our IW hub, the AMR is to transport objects inside the factory from one place to the other and do it autonomously. And once you have multiple of those in the same factory, you're like, okay, how do I coordinate all this work? Because even if you get human level intelligence on the robots, you still need rules. You still need rules to just avoid chaos. And that's where our any fleet software comes in, which is a fleet management system. And what we call a fleet is just a group of our AMRs in this case. And where do we find the use of some AI tool or AI solutions could be both on the robot itself, some edge AI, which is common, I guess, to listeners of your podcast, everything related to computer vision, to even RL for navigation or for movement and control. But you can also find it on our fleet management system. And on the fleet management system, it could look more like the operations research aspect more than models being just deployed and trained. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a classic optimization problem from, <laughs> from way back, right? To manage a fleet of robots. Exactly. Like sometimes boring solutions are the ones that work best in production environments. Are these robots designed for like a specific factory or are you selling general purpose robots? Like how does that work? Yeah. So basically they are designed for indoors factories. So that's for first case, but we don't design them for specific kinds of factories. So we have now external customers, which are warehouses where the main tasks of a warehouse is just delivering objects inside the warehouse itself and packaging them in a specific way. And we have production lines. So for instance, IdealWorks is 100% owned by BMW Group. And that's where the project initially started at BMW Group. And that's why we have a lot of factories building cars where our robot is actually helping in this process. And you can see multiple kinds of dynamics that you can find. So a warehouse dynamics is a bit different than a production line dynamics in this case, but they are similar enough for the robot to be able to act and take decisions 
correctly in both of them. And are humans putting the objects on the robot and then they travel around or how do things get on the robot? Yeah, nice question. So our robot is basically like a rectangular shape and it's very low on the ground. So what it basically does, it drives on a specific object and then lifts it up and then moves around. And is this like a big box or what, what kind of objects should I be imagining? Yeah, you can imagine it. So what we call a dolly basically is a rectangular metallic shape with four wheels. And on top of the shape, you can put whatever you want. And this gives some flexibility on the types of objects you can carry around because as long as we can go under this dolly, we can carry the object itself. But actually, it's kind of a special shape that you can drive under, right? Like, do you have some kind of custom thing that lifts an object off the ground where the robot can get underneath it? If the object is directly on the ground, we have specific, I would say, custom blocks that we can sell our customers where they can put them, let's say, if they have a wooden pallet that's like directly on the ground. We can sell specific objects where you can put on the pallets on top of them, and then you can drive around like you can be able to lift up the pallets easily in this case. And I guess, are these actually like deployed in real factories? Could I go see one driving around? Of course. So like last time, Chris, I guess, was at our company and we didn't have the chance to show him the robot directly. But of course, we have robots driving already at BMW. So we have multiple factories inside BMW Group where our robots are already moving around. And literally, as we speak now, some robots are just moving objects around and then delivering them while keeping the logistics process efficient. And can the robots really freely move? I feel like I've been at factories where there's like specific lines that the robots drive on to sort of separate them from the humans. Or can they really like navigate anywhere in the factory? How do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, that's actually a very good question because in factories, especially in Germany, you have very specific rules on how you can drive or where you can drive. And basically, you can imagine it as kind of free. You have kind of a lane as if you're driving your own car. So you can't go on the side, sidewalk, basically, because that's like restricted area for, for pedestrians. But you are free to overtake obstacles in your own lane. I see. And what were people doing before this? Are they driving around like forklifts or something? Or what, what is this actually replacing? Yeah, so that's one question which like always whenever you talk about autonomy in factories, the first instinct is we're replacing humans. Like we're just doing it to replace humans. And actually when the project started at BMW Group, the main goal was that in some cities in Germany where you have huge factories for BMW Group, literally everyone is already employed at the factory. So there's no one without a job and they need to expand this factory itself. So it's more of a way to expand easily than to actually replace the people who are working now. Is it like hard to coordinate with humans? Like, how does it work? Like, does somebody, so the robot goes and wants to pick something up, but then presumably a human needs to do something with it. So, how does it know to kind of like wait until it's ready to take 
depart to some other place. Yeah, so this human-robot interaction is also important, not only on the pickup or delivery, but even whenever it's driving. So usually if you're on the road and you see someone coming in the car, maybe a simple eye contact, you would understand if they will let you go or they want to just keep going. But with a robot, it's a bit difficult because when you look at it, you're like, okay, what is it about to do? Is it about to accelerate now or what? So we have some kind of lights on the robot itself to give some kind of visual feedback for humans to understand what it's about to do. And on delivery locations or on pickup locations, it's basically requested already by humans. So you can imagine as you have a production line and you have like a huge stack of objects that you're taking and building the car, putting the objects inside. And then at one point it's empty. So you click on what we call a call button, which will call a robot to come in and it will actually call two robots. So the first one will come in, take the empty one out, and the second one will come in with a full one. And that's how the process keeps going. And it's either requested directly by humans or by warehouse management systems, which are optimizing the flow of objects in the factory. And so what are some of the surprisingly hard things about doing this? Like I'm imagining when you sort of dream up this plan and then you deploy it, there's a lot of things that I wouldn't think of as problems that turn out to be problems. Can you give me some examples of those things? Yeah, like especially if you want to talk about the machine learning aspect, really challenging is, or how I can summarize it a bit, is like a quote by Richard Feynman. It's like the first principle is not to fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. And basically it englobes multiple aspects. And the first one being, whenever you face a problem, if you're very deep into machine learning and just getting all the news and all the hype of it, your first reflex is just solve it directly. Like just solve it with whatever tool you have now, whatever is state of the art. And just like the early days of the iPhone, you had like, there's an app for that. Like whatever you want, there's an app for that. Now there's a model for that. So any challenge you face, there's certainly a model for that, especially with hugging face now. So you can literally do any specific task. And like one small example, which can show that is when you first deploy a robot in the factories, you soon figure out that lighting system inside the factory is super bright and you will face a lot of reflections. And especially the objects that you're trying to carry around are already metallic objects. And your camera is just looking at the objects and then you realize that the floor is even reflective because the material on the floor should be done in a specific way for safety regulations and so on. So your first instinct is, yeah, we could use any deep learning model to try to reduce this reflection aspect or try to segment the floor out and so on and so forth. But what we ended up having is just tilt the camera seven degrees. That's it. Like, just go for the simple aspect that you can control and not directly for the complex solution. And some challenges also from reflection is we received once like a bug on our system that's happening very rarely, but it does happen 
that our robot, whenever it's trying to go under this object to lift it up, sometimes it's drifting way too much in a very unreasonable way. And we didn't really know why it was drifting. There wasn't like specific time of day or any specific task or not even a specific mission where it's drifting. And then we went to the factory because we have access to the factories, which is also a huge advantage where we can see what's actually happening. And it turns out that sometimes as we're trying to detect the object that we're driving under, there's one person with a safety vest, like with the reflective stripes on it, passing just behind the object. And then it's causing all this reflective aspect. And then we're not detecting where we should go in and it's drifting a bit. So such edge cases like show up even more and more whenever you deploy stuff. It's kind of interesting. Like I, you know, I mean, I obviously love machine learning and would want to apply it everywhere, but I would think even for just driving underneath an object, wouldn't there be like a cheap way to know where the object is and know where the, the robot is and just couldn't you do it with some other kind of localization technique that might be simpler and more reliable? Like why, why do you have to even rely on vision for that? Yeah. So, and that's amazing question because there are so many ways that robots are trying to do the same exact task. And if you're trying to simplify the problem, why should I even do all this vision aspect or vision processing on edge? And it turns out that some objects like chargers, for instance, are very fixed in the ground. They have their own electric system and they can't be really moved around. So whenever you're trying to go under it, even if after a long period of time of driving, the robot could drift a little bit in terms of localization, whenever you reach this object, you can somehow understand exactly where it is. It's not really shifted from where it should be. But whenever you have dollies, those are sometimes pushed by humans and or rotated by humans. And this could be up to half a meter off the actual location where it should be. And then when you reach the location, you should know like, is it the one that I should go under or is it actually the one next to it? And such aspects could need a bit more of processing on edge to do it. Now, some people may argue with the fact that you could put QR codes or like any aspect for localization. This turns out to be, it is a cheap solution first, like actually printing them out. But at the same time, the tearing of it, like with time will make you try to replace them and you could have thousands of them per factory. So looking at the problem from a more long-term perspective, it makes sense to put more effort now into a bit more autonomy on the robot itself in this task. How much autonomy does the robot have? Like what actually are the parts that it uses machine learning to do? Is it all vision? So it's not only the camera. So we have on the robot itself, we have two LIDARs and they are flat, flat LIDARs basically. So you have one line. We're like, okay, that's really good from a physics perspective and from being realistic enough. But what does simulation do for you? Is it like testing scenarios or testing what a new version of your robot is going to do? Or how does simulation fit in? 
So we have multiple aspects where simulation could be useful. First one is whenever you're trying to test one isolated behavior of our robot, we can test that directly in simulation. So as we said, the docking aspect where you're going under a specific object and seeing if shifting it left or right or rotating it could affect or could affect it negatively, this can be tested on its own. But at the same time, the fun part is testing more complex scenarios or stuff that you can't really test in the real world. So for instance, what would our robot do if a forklift just dropped in front of it suddenly? Like, how would it behave? So we could test that in our simulation environment. And what we did is whenever we found this need for testing such scenarios, you can imagine them as like driving tests. So if they pass the driving test, that's fine. You can keep going. And we were inspired by the Carla simulator for autonomous driving. And they had some kind of scenario definition. So you can define what you want to have in a simulation environment. So it can be automatically run on with your robots. And we adapted that for factory settings and for AMRs. And now we have our own kind of language where we can say, send this robot from this location to this other location. And while it's driving, just make a forklift drive around randomly, delivering objects, and let's see what happens in this scenario. Do your robots then also have to kind of predict the behavior of things like forklifts around them? Because I know for autonomous vehicles, you'd have to do that. But I wonder in a factory, is there really other stuff moving around that you have to forecast where they're going to go? Working on optimizing. So what we focus on at generic level, let's say, is the total efficiency of the factory itself. And sometimes this is translated into either features for the robot itself in driving smoothly or docking under objects faster and so on. Or it can be translated into task assignment or scheduling or route finding from the fleet management system. And the main focus is how can we reach a higher throughput and be safe whenever delivering all objects into fact. Because that's, from a logistics perspective, those are the priorities. You have to deliver everything on time. Like at BMW, there's this just on time, just in sequence. So everything should be exactly delivered at the time it should be delivered in and in the sequence it should be delivered in to have the whole workflow efficient. And we try, as I said, to not fool ourselves and say, whoa, that's a nice segmentation model. Let's put it on our robot and understand the world. But if it's not really driving any return on investment for our bigger goal, it's just a gimmick in this case. So we try to always connect it with what will improve the efficiency of the factory. And how do you predict how much it's going to improve the efficiency of the factory? Like, are you able to simulate the whole factory and software before you put something live? So we have one of our, I would say, biggest experiences in the simulation started when we simulated a full BMW factory. And that was also showcased in one of the GTC keynotes by Jensen even, showing exactly how Omniverse helped in simulating a full working factory 
from BMW Group. And what you can see are literally even humans moving around, like doing basic tasks, but actually being in the environment. And in such situations, you can deliver a specific robot and see what will happen. But I always like to have, or like to say that 3D simulations and high fidelity simulations have their advantages, but we always also need 2D fast and largely scalable simulations because one of them is helping the intelligence of the robot itself and being realistic enough from a vision perspective and navigation and so on. And the second one is helping in the coordination aspect. So whenever you're trying to use simulation or create a simulation environment, it should be scoped around the metric you're trying to improve. So what are you trying to test? Are you trying to test the high fidelity and the behavior of your robot in high fidelity environments? Or regardless of that, considering a perfect behavior of the robot, are you testing now the coordination or the assignment of tasks and scheduling of tasks? And that's where, from a simulation perspective, we try to tackle it based on the need we have. And do you like further kind of make components that different people work on? Like, how do you actually like structure the team and the project? Yeah. So at first we were all like trying to build the robot. So make the robot really good. And then we moved into now that the robot is working well in the factory, let's work on the fleet management system. And at this stage, we are split into, I would say, for each team. So from the any fleet aspect of our fleet management aspect, we have the software engineering or backend services, which is connecting to warehouse management systems, making all the integrations possible, getting all the messages from the robots. Because you can imagine that every robot should report what it's doing to the fleet management system. And in our case, it's at the one hertz frequency. So every second you get one message. I'm here. That's what I'm doing. I'm here. That's what I'm doing. I'm here. That's what I'm doing. And that's what the fleet management system tries to ingest. And part of it is also from this AI perspective. So how can we optimize the flow knowing what's happening now? How can we optimize the flow moving forward? And you could potentially even have machine learning approaches, not only operations research aspect in terms of traffic prediction or predictable or predictive maintenance in the sense where you can understand that one robot has a battery which is potentially draining more than it should in a specific sense. So you can directly look into that. And so that's how we try to split this workload on the cloud part. And on edge, it's also split into the robotics aspect of it. So robotics engineers writing the software itself. And there is also AI on edge, which is focusing on the vision aspect or navigation aspect also on the robot. We have the hardware team. Usually they say like, it's all software. Hardware is already solved. It's all software. But hardware is here just to make your life harder. That's that's exactly what it does for robotics. And there's also the safety team. So we have one team specifically focusing on the safety aspect because 
as I said, in Germany, you have specific regulations you have to follow, but our customers are not only in Germany. So we have customers in France, in Spain, in England. So multiple countries have different regulations that you have to follow or certificates that you have to get for your robot itself. And that's what our safety team focuses on. And I mean, I would imagine there's a huge project to do like testing and simulation too, right? Like how does that fit into that workflow? Yeah. So that's where our simulation team, from a simulation perspective, we have the people writing the code to enable all the scenario definition and enable multiple robots in the same environment, which is also a collaboration always ongoing with NVIDIA regarding the stop. And the second aspect is industrial designers, because you could put all the robots inside the factory, but you need to really model the factory. And in a sense, you need the objects to be as reflective as they are in the real world and to look as big as they are in the real world. So dimensions and textures of objects and how they interact with light. And if you hit it, what happens whenever you hit a specific object? All of that is also from our industrial designers who are focusing basically on getting, you can imagine the workflow as scanning a factory trying to understand exactly where each object is, and then trying to replicate it manually, trying to see, okay, here's a specific object that we can drop in. So the point cloud that we generate from the whole factory can be replaced with the actual objects, which have physics-enabled objects, let's say. And this final simulation can be used by the robots to drive around and interact. I see, so every factory that you go into every new factory, you try to really like simulate like all the lighting. So it's not necessary. Yeah. So whenever we start, we try to start in gradual steps. And usually some customers request it. So it is one of our offerings, I would say, that we can scan the whole factory because it doesn't only help in testing our robots. It also helps them in managing their own factory so they can see everything. They can move objects around and they see, oh, that's better. That's more efficient this way. Let's do it. So it's also like a win-win situation sometimes whenever we do the scan, but it is time intensive. So it's of course not a requirement before going inside the factory to do so. And like when you roll out a new version of your perception algorithm, for example, do you push it into every robot and every factory at once? I would think that would be kind of a scary update. No, yeah, <laughs> that's a scary move to do. Even changes on the fleet management system, we try to approach it as a feature flag approach. So from a robotics perspective, I would say the changes of features recently wasn't too frequent. So it wasn't a main concern. It's becoming more and more important as we're going. So especially this year, for instance, but from a fleet management perspective, the features are way more frequent and the changes that you need to do to keep the system more efficient are more frequent. And whenever we're deploying, we try to deploy per area first. And even before that, we test it in simulation. So we test specific scenarios, the same ones that we said can help like the scenario definition language, which can help that the robot pass the driving test. They could also help our fleet management system to pass some 
efficiency tasks. So can you really manage this load of tasks or can you manage the sequence of tasks in a specific way? And then we deploy it sequentially on our customer facilities with their knowledge also. Because that's also one of the, I would say, challenges is in logistics environments, you can't just update your code and say, okay, now it's it's working. Because whenever any factory sees that your system is working, they just don't need any updates. That's it. It's working. Just don't touch it for next 10 years. That's it. You're like, no, we can't do that. And then there's always a back and forth on when the update will happen. And we need to give them time to prepare kind of more mental preparation, more than actual physical preparation, because change is very hard to be accepted in logistics environments. Once it's running and it's running well, they don't need updates because they're afraid any downtime is very critical. That's why. So everyone is afraid of any, even one minute of downtime. And that's why they just want to keep it as it is. Well, I suppose, why do you then do updates if the customers don't want it? I mean, couldn't you, if it's working, couldn't you let the robots run forever? That's one way of looking at it, yes. But at the same time, we would be handling many versions of our own app. So you would... Yeah, I understand that, believe me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, So that would be a huge mess and trying to manage all of it and trying to keep developers focusing on old bugs for old systems working for just one customer who doesn't want to update ever in their lives. And that's why we decided to be a more dynamic approach to it. And even from our side, our whole system is running on the cloud. So it's even easier for us to do the updates because Usually in logistics environments, you can have more of on-premise servers. And then you just deploy hardware stuff and they have to see what's happening and feel confident that, okay, that's a fleet management system. That's it. This box sitting in the corner, that's our fleet management system. Don't touch it. It's working. But now we're taking a bit more modern approach to it, saying, okay, you have to Except it's a transition phase. So it's still hard with some customers. Some others are really open to it. And they're like, yeah, of course, we want to try it. We want to be even better users. So try even newer features before anyone else. But yeah, it's more of an educational transition phase. So when I've gone into car factories in my life, I actually haven't seen robots moving things around, but I've seen like lots of robots kind of like doing different things and manipulating and welding and and all that like do you think about adding capabilities to like manipulate the world you're in maybe like you know have arms that pick stuff up or modify the objects for the moment we're focusing on moving robots like moving parts inside the factory so amrs or even agvs what's an agv it's let's say, a simpler version of an AMR, and its autonomy is a bit more restricted. So you can imagine it as robots driving on a specific magnetic line. So if they see any obstacle, they just stop. There's proximity sensor, they just pause, and then they keep going. 
So the autonomy is a bit more restrictive on an AGV than it is on an AMR. And we try in our any fleet, that's where the name came from, to be able to manage any fleet of robots in this case. Now at BMW, we have a lot of like robotic arms, as you said, they are used for welding and you can see them in even cages, like for safety purposes, like they have four robot arms. One of them is like holding an object. Second one is welding it in place and so on. But usually there's not like intelligence there, right? They're just completely scripted what they do, right? Yeah. yeah. Most of the time it's completely scripted because you need it to be as fast as possible. And there's no intervention or interaction with any human. So every task is just repetitive, exactly the same, enclosed even physically, is limited in this physical space. And what you can see basically is, or where our robot comes into play is whenever those robots finish welding and finish specific object and put it aside on specific dolly, we are the robot which comes in lift it up and go deliver it to specific locations. That's how the integration is happening for now. And so what are the things left to do? Like, why doesn't every factory use robots like this? The things left to do. That's a very good question. Is that a good question? Is that the right question to ask? I don't know. It sort of seems like if this works, why isn't it in every factory that I would visit? And so do people with factories come to you and say, hey, I want you to automate my factory? Is that how it works? Like if I was manufacturing something, could I say, hey, <laughs> can, you, can you make my factory more efficient? It goes both ways. So sometimes we see specific factories which can use our help and we try to approach them. Or we can see it in logistics conferences, for example, whenever you have demos of robots, clients going in and seeing, okay, which robot could support in my process? And we always try to show the customer exactly how the robot could behave in their own environment and try to study this use case on its own. Because as much as we would like to have it as a plug and play, like here's a robot, it will just work, it will improve your process. It's usually not that easy. So whenever you're talking about machine learning, it's not like always the solution to any problem. Because whenever you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Also, in the robot aspect, like sometimes you don't really need this kind of autonomy, or sometimes you don't really need that many robots. You need way less, or you need to optimize your process. Because whenever you're trying to automate, it doesn't make sense to just throw robots at it and just make it work. What kinds of factories benefit the most from these autonomous robots? Fact first, the people who are open to understand that change will be necessary. And change not in a way that you're changing your factory, because the whole point of having our AMR solution is we don't touch any of your objects. So we don't put markers on your objects. We don't put any markers on the ground. We don't have any reflectors for localization. We just deploy our robot itself on your ground. So. That's also one of the selling points, I would say, which helps customers look at the robot in terms of a more positive approach. Okay, we can try it. It's not a higher cost of just having it and seeing what it does for a few days. But yeah, the first one is people who are open to understand how to improve the process. Because from our side, it's not only 
software engineering problem. It's also you have subject matter experts. So you have logistics experts looking at the process and saying, here's where a robot would make sense to integrate. Those kind of transports can be automated by a robot so that your forklift can be free to do more transports of this other type. So in this way, you did increase efficiency, not by removing one task and saying, okay, that's the robot, it's doing it, but by re-architecting how you're just moving or efficiently working inside the factory itself. And so have you been to lots and lots of factories to see how they work? Is that a core part of your job? It is, most of the time. So we even have our own small scale factory where we have objects which we see usually in the real world and we set it in our own testing factory and this one is just like a full empty warehouse and then we added all the objects needed and what we try to do is whenever we go to new customers we try to replicate stuff that we see in reality in our testing environment because as much as you want to improve from a simulation perspective seeing it physically live working is way more important from a robotics perspective than just staying on the software level so the two aspects are very very important in this case and the more you see the problem and you see a factory you can differentiate between what the customer would like or is asking for and the actual problem the customer has and those are usually not the same most of the times because the customer is most of the time reporting a symptom not the actual root cause problem and then you have to work with the customer to understand exactly what is causing this slowdown or what is causing this customer to ask for a robot and then try to fix this aspect of the problem and this is better done whenever you go and physically see what's happening and get a feeling of the space itself. Because sometimes when you look at the map, you're like, okay, that's 100 meters by 30 meters. That's fine as a scale. And then you're there and you feel like a miniature person because like the ceiling is so high and the area is huge. So you get a better feeling whenever you're on site and seeing exactly a problem happen. That makes sense. I mean, it sounds really interesting working in the real world. Like I, I imagine like each factory has like a new, <laughs> a new surprise or challenge. Always. And one thing we noticed is you were tweeting a lot about time management and, you know, kind of optimizing code for, you know, kind of long-term productivity. Do you have any thoughts there, especially around machine learning code and making sure that it's kind of like maintainable and developer productivity stays high? Yeah, I would say one aspect which is taking more interest recently in the ML community, which is whenever or like the code quality itself, but also the software engineering best practices. Because having more and more tutorials of machine learning is both a blessing and a curse. Because now you can write everything in two lines and it works. And the bad part is you can write everything in two lines that actually works. But how well can you extend that whenever you're working in a team? And how well are you really using some software engineering best practices whenever you're doing this development? And basically, there's nothing very specific that's 
I would say like focus on this or that, but as a general idea, whenever we're approaching a problem or my personal preference is having faster iteration cycles, whatever the problem is, the faster you can experiment and see what gets out of it and then experiment again and see what gets out of it. So which most of the time, for example, in machine learning aspect, we use weights and biases sweeps, which is awesome to just look at and say, okay, we know for a fact that some, like for a rule of thumb, we know such parameters would make sense, which combination it is, you have two choices. Either you have the compute and just try it out, or you can go into the theoretical aspect and try to really figure out which combination would make more sense. If you have sweeps, you can have faster iterations. So you can literally just see it in front of you. Okay, that's exactly what's happening here and act accordingly. And it's the same from a software perspective. So whenever you're writing code, how fast can you see your changes on the robot? Or how fast can you see your changes on the fleet management system? The shorter this period of time, the harder the problems you can solve. And the second aspect is avoid the bias of looking at what you would like to see. So this is a huge problem because whenever you do anything or like deploy any machine learning model or solve any problem in any kind of way, any small hint that will let you feel that you were right, you will just take it and then feed on it. And then that's it. You go into the loop of using the wrong way of solving the problem or just not solving it or not looking at the correct metrics. So the faster iteration cycles and not fooling yourself are two, I would say, aspects in general to look at from a development perspective. I mean, one thing that people always ask me about that I would imagine would be particularly acute for you is, is sort of like ML ops, like kind of keeping like, you know, the models like organized and, you know, deployed reliably. Like, can you share any best practices that you have since you're really deploying models into a really high stakes environment? Like, what have you learned? Like, how frequently do you do updates? Like, how do you keep track of, you know, the updates that you put in? How do you make sure that your tests really matter for the use cases before they're deployed? So given that now we're still early on the stage, I wouldn't say that we're experts or we're doing it in a, any best practice way. And you want to keep track of which model was trained on which data, given that at the same time, we're generating synthetic data from our simulation environment. And then keeping track of all of that is one of the challenges or one challenge that you may face in this case. And the second one is whenever you're deploying to, whenever you're deploying anything to a robot or to any system in particular, keeping track of a metric, which will let you know if it's better than whatever you had before, because still in your evaluation process, you can't face all the potential edge cases, whatever your evaluation data set or evaluation scenarios in simulation is. And whenever you're deploying any code changes or to your system, deciding what is better in a specific situation is always a challenging problem. So because some of those metrics can only be seen after a specific period of time, and then you see degrading behavior versus the older version. And that's where 
for example, in our fleet management system, whenever we're trying to deploy anything, we try to deploy services in shadow mode. So what the shadow mode will do, it will literally take the same input as a normal service. It will take the decisions, but it will not execute it to just stop after taking the decision. And in this way, we can actually see the difference in the decisions being made. And whenever there's a difference, we try to understand this difference over time. This way we get kind of a testing and production, but it's not really testing and production because the customer is not affected at all. And at the same time, we get the insights of the production aspect and the metrics that we need from this deployment. What do you believe are the most challenges faced in such MLOps approaches from your experience? Well, I think what it comes from, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I think that machine learning is more stochastic than code. And it, it has some like key differences. Like, you know, I think we don't actually understand the internal mechanisms of the models very well. And it kind of gets worse as the models get bigger and bigger and more and more complicated. And so I think people have trouble just like having best practices around things that we're used to with software. Like, you know, what's the equivalent of like CICD for machine learning is an interesting question, right? Because, you know, it's like the, the machine models are typically not going to behave exactly the same way every time. Whereas like with software, if any test fails, of course, you just wouldn't deploy. Or I think, you know, monitoring things the right way in production is an unsolved problem. Like we still see lots and lots of people have these like failure modes where you like in retrospect, you're like, oh, that was so dumb. You know, like it should have been so clear that that was going to break. But, you know, I think that we kind of know how to like monitor software, but I think ML has a lot of cases where it quietly fails and that can be really tough. So we just see a lot of concern from our customers around like, hey, how do you get this whole thing working end to end? But I think it's kind of because the methods are newer than software development and we haven't really discovered the, you know, the right ways to do it. And of course, as a, Toolmaker, it's like I think that you know a lot of the tools are not really good enough yet, and that's why we want to make better ones to help folks like you deploy things reliably and get the outputs that you'd expect. And I think there's another phenomenon. I'm kind of curious about your background. You know, I think a lot of people come out of grad school where they're working on things that are kind of more contained. I don't want to say like toy problems, but kind of toy-like problems. And then suddenly they're doing something where people really expect it to be like reliable and working in the real world and they're just not trained for it. Like I remember that myself. Like I, you know, if you're writing for a paper, you know, you're really trying to rush the paper out and there's not a lot of incentive to write high quality reusable code. So you actually don't really learn it. And a lot of professors don't actually know how to do that. So like you're not like around mentors that are like teaching you to do it. And then suddenly, you know, you're you're really expected to like, you know, the maintenance cycle is a lot longer than the development cycle for everything. And yeah, I think there's that that like leads to a lot of problems. I don't know if that resonates with you. Yeah, actually. So when I was doing my master's, I started out being interested in cybersecurity first. So that was my main focus. And then I got some opportunities in focusing on ML application and they were basically in nature language processing. So and it was in the early days of NLP where having good word to vec model was like the state of the art at this stage. And the first time where I saw deployments to production or where I personally deployed to production was in the first startup I joined. So we were trying to analyze the news articles 
And the whole point was to build a tool for journalists and for anyone who's interested in searching and understanding what's actually happening, including some kind of map where you can have the news article pop up and say, okay, that's happening here and that's happening there and so on in real time. And deploying to production was scary at the stage. So whenever you deploy anything, for instance, our last feature was about incident detection. And the point was we needed to be able to detect incidents like stabbing, protests, any killing or like natural disasters and so on before mainstream media. So just gathering it from all sources, from tweets, from news sources, from local news sources, local magazines from all around the world. And at the time, trying to understand, so in 2016 or 2017, it was still starting out where Spacey was like English and a bit of German, like early versions. And understanding very small text like tweets was very challenging. Even classifying them was very challenging. So whenever we deployed to production, I remember one funny bug at the time, which was, so we're trying to detect stuff that are bad, like incidents and so on. And then one user reported that they are seeing one article or one tweet saying that donkeys kill more people than airplane crashes per year. And it was just like fact of the day tweet, but it was classified as an incident because there's killing and people and like all of it. So this aspect of deploying to production started at this stage. And then you start to see that whatever you're reading from research paper perspective, they are trying to push the theoretical aspect or theoretical understanding of the field further. But they are not telling you to just take it and go deploy it in production or deploy it in like anywhere. So whenever you're looking at research papers, you need to understand what they are trying to give you and not just take whatever is given and just go deploy it somewhere. So get the lessons learned from this paper and try to implement them in your application if it makes sense. And also take a look at the benchmark they are working on. Because most of the time, yes, it's state of the art based on what compared to who explicitly, what's the actual data set. And that's where you can understand if it makes sense to integrate in your work or not. So as you said, those, those toy problems, like you always face specific aspects where you have toy problems, but I still believe they are very important in a research setting because from a research perspective, as I said, you're trying to improve your understanding of a problem or understanding of how it works. So you need to drill down the constraints and let's say have a grid world. So it's not a free space. You can just up, down, left, right. It's a small game, but it gets the essence of the theoretical aspect. The problem happens when people consider state of the art on a game equals state of the art in production. And this is where it's messed up. Yeah, I wonder if you have any thoughts, you know, as, as you're talking about factory robots, I was thinking about visiting my friend over Christmas and she had one of those Amazon robots that, that kind of drives around her house. And, and she was like pretty impressed with it, you know, but I was kind of looking at it and it was like a pretty, I mean, like, you know, compared to what I thought we might have when I was young, it really can't do 
that much. I hope no one from Amazon's offended. It's a kind of an amazing thing that they've shipped something, but still, it's not like, you know, it's like washing my dishes or anything like that. I'm kind of curious if you think some of this technology could be repurposed for consumer applications or how far away we are from useful consumer robots. Making the word of the lab written on the ground. And then she said, look how amazing it is. But the catch was, it was a video where it was already written on the ground and then they drove randomly and they played the video backwards. <laughs> I see, I see. So, <laughs> and the main idea was that from a hardware perspective, it's kind of solved, like the behavior itself, like moving, whenever you know what you should be doing, moving towards your goal is solved in some sense. And the same aspect, I believe, happened also with like humanoid robots where you have robotic arms doing the dishes and doing all kind of stuff inside the house. And then it turns out to be a human controlled robot. And I like this example because it shows where the gap is. And the gap is in the software aspect from this planning perspective. So planning and control, of course. And we see, for instance, control and Boston Dynamics videos. So two days ago, it was just running around, throwing a bag for someone and then doing a front flip just to showcase how good they are from a control perspective. But I believe from a consumer point of view, it depends how complex you want your robot to be. So do you really want a robot with two arms walking around in the house doing stuff? Because it could be simple. Some stuff could be simpler. Now, how far are we from having such a robot? I would say maybe if asked me a year ago, I would give some kind of estimates. But after seeing the last two months' development in deep learning, especially in like NLP models, that was beyond what was understood that could happen. So some aspect happened so fast that people are not even keeping up with the pace now. And you have startups like Stability AI doing outstanding work in the field of even computer vision and diffusion models and so on. And every version is even more outstanding than the previous one. Now, how much of this is actually related or transferable to production robotics aspect is still unknown. But I believe during 2023, we will see a lot of changes which are dramatic in terms of planning and behavior of such small robots. Well, look, as you know, we always end with two questions and I want to make sure we get them in. The second to last one being, what's a topic in machine learning that you think is underappreciated or under-researched? I would say it's troubleshooting because, as you said, there are differences with the software approach and CICD pipelines and all the tests and unit and integration tests and so on work well in the software scope. You go to the machine learning scope and it's very different on how you can test a model. Troubleshooting is even worse in this case because there's no real feedback. There's no, I'm not working here. It just fails. And feels like whenever you're deploying any model, what you're trying to do is not make it outstanding, but what you're actually trying is whenever it fails, I hope it's above average. 
like whenever it fails doing what it should do, I hope it's still good enough. And this aspect of understanding when it's good enough and whenever it's bad, understanding why it's bad, I believe it's still not really researched enough. I like that answer. No one's given that before, but I, I like it a lot. And then a final question is for you, what's been the hardest part about going from research like model that worked to a production model that's actually useful in factories? The understanding that baselines are more important than having a state of the art model whenever you start. And this works even in a software perspective, but from a machine learning perspective, understanding what good means and what good enough means are very important whenever you're deploying or whenever you're switching from research to production environment. And connecting that with your business and eventual return on investment for your business, this whole flow, it feels harder than the technical aspect of it. Because from technical perspective, you can Google it. You can have communities, you can have people helping you. Some stuff are changing and are becoming way better now that you have way bigger communities helping each other in specific technical aspects. But understanding when and what to implement so that your company actually improves and actually gets this return in this whole flow, I believe that's one of the hardest aspects to get right because it's very use case specific and company specific. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. That was a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. If you're enjoying these interviews and you want to learn more, please click on the link to the show notes in the description where you can find links to all the papers that are mentioned, supplemental material, and a transcription that we work really hard to produce. So check it out.